Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. In former times... Greece was considered the first country in the world where the fair sex had acquired a superior taste in their vestments, and every person of taste has admired the elegant simplicity of their dresses. In our memory, France has given her dresses to other nations, but it was reserved for the graces of Great Britain to take the lead in fashion and to show that if they do not surpass, they certainly equal the elegance of the most celebrated Grecian dresses. In short, beauty, shape, and taste are nowhere more general nor anywhere better united than in England. So, Tom Holland, those were the words of Nikolaus von Heidloff, the Bruno of the 18th century top, <laughs> top fashion writer, a German engraver from Stuttgart who worked in Paris and then went to London and did a, a gallery of fashion in the 1790s and early 1800s. And um, I mean, that's pretty much the case now, isn't it, Tom? I mean, in all seriousness, you'll very rarely meet a foreigner who's who's better dressed than an Englishman. That's true, I isn't it? I think that's right. And, and I think our beauty, shape and taste remain yeah, the envy of the absolutely world, triumphant. Yeah, the envy of the world. And Dominic, I mean, I like to think that we're a patriotic podcast, aren't we? Yeah, very much. Uh, and very I, much. it strikes me listening to that that we don't begin our episodes with enough patriotic no. reflections on how great. And I know that I know we have a lot of overseas listeners from the United States, Australia, and so on. And I think they'll probably agree with us. <laughs> I'm sure well, they'll agree with us. They won't in any way be disagreeing with anything we've said so far. So, so this is so Dominic. This the, the period that that um, that von Heidloff is referring to is it's the Regency period. Yeah. And I would say the Regency period is, I mean, it's famed for its dress, isn't it? Uh, so whether it's Colin Firth emerging <laughs> from in a, a sodden lake, in, in a sodden yeah. lake, or, the, you know, so, or Bridgerton with all the, the kind of the froth and the fantasy of that, the yeah. Regency look is something really, really distinctive. Um, and, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's always been kind of uh, interesting. People have been aware when they look at Jane Austen that the seeming kind of tranquility of the, the, the world that she's portraying is illusory because in the background you have the Industrial Revolution, you have Revolutionary Wars, Napoleonic Wars, you have yeah. uh, Britain's globalizing role for, for good and definitely for bad as well. Um, and that was why I was, I was really, really fascinated to come across a book by um, Hilary Davidson, who is a, a fashion historian and curator called Dress in the Age of Jane Austen. And it is it's a fantastic book because basically it, it answers the question of what is going on in the world of fashion. And there is something really, really distinctive and unique. It's not just about the look. It's about the, the pace and the process of change that marks it out, I think, as, as properly revolutionary. And I'm delighted to say that we actually have Hillary with us. Hello, Hillary. Um, Hello. 
And Hillary, you're Australian, aren't you? I am, yes. So uh, how do you feel about Dominic's um, oh, look, I, I can't, patriotism? And, uh, obviously, I can't disagree with anything that he says. You know, it's, it's, it's all true. <laughs> I think we should probably end the podcast right there, Tom. <laughs> yes, <I said. laughs> so, so, Hillary, um, in your book, basically, you were, you were saying that the Regency period, the bonnets, the Empire Line dresses, the, um, the, you know, the Mr. Darcy shirt and all that kind of stuff, that this these are the expressions of a revolutionary age and that and, and that this is something radically new so so in what way it's it's like in the during the regency period which i think of as sort of starting about the mid 1790s it's like people start transforming all the ways they've thought about clothing before and it's this a fantastic kind of middle period that gets us from into the to the modern age and so many of the elements of dress of this period, this very distinctive dress, as you say, they're building in the years before, but then it catalyzes. And it, it's things like the women, silhouette of women's dress just changes completely from kind of triangles and, and breadth into this column shape. And men's dress takes on the silhouettes that we're still familiar with from kind of a three-piece suit today. And it, it's clothing transformation at a speed that we've never seen before, but it's all rooted in social, cultural, industrial and political change. So by and large, if you're in the mid 18th century, so the age before what we're going to be talking about today, the Regency period, are you wearing the same things, let's say in 1770 or 1780? Are you roughly dressed like your parents were before you? Roughly, the principles of clothing and how you put it together and the sort of the, the basic shapes are very similar, uh, you know, with fashions changing at pace, there's details about volume and, and silhouette, but the the template is the same, yes. Right, so a bloke is wearing stockings. Um, and breeches. And breeches, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And a sort of, and a sort of a shirt, I guess, and a, and a, and a coat. And a waistcoat and then a coat on top of that. But the coat right. doesn't have an emphasis on the shoulders and a lot of the bulk is kind of around the hips and thighs. And powdered hair or wig and yes. high heels and high heels at this point. So we should say about class rather than about gender. And we should also say that essentially in this episode, we're talking about people with enough money to invest in fashion, which is presumably quite a minority. The, the sort of the, the middling gentry professional classes and above, which at this point is about 20, 25% of Britain's population. Right. So it's striking that it's the 1790s where everything really starts to change. To what extent is that influenced by the French Revolution, which of course is also kicking in at that time? Well, this is, I think this is one of the great questions and it's discussed a lot in fashion history, but to my way of thinking, the revolution itself is assigned a lot of uh, driver for the change rather than being a kind of a marker of the change that's happening. I feel like the you know, continent-shaking events of the French Revolution uh, they're part of wider revolutions that are going on. And dress, what happens to dress where particularly the marker is that women's waistlines go up, they move from the natural waistline to right under the bust in about a three to four year period, which is incredibly fast. And that was building anyway. And so clothing at this time is partaking of many revolutions and it just happens to kind of fit neatly with mm. many of the democratic ideals that are being uh, you know, promoted or, or made more vocal by the revolutionary period. 
so how is i mean we, we can go into things like other revolutions like the industrial revolution or indeed the enlightenment more generally in a second but just to pick up on that why is a higher waistline more democratic well, it's it's not just the higher waistline, it's the whole way gowns are constructed. So one of the big revolutions in dress is a shift from a silk regime to a cotton regime. And muslin becomes an acceptable, the, the, you know, the white kind of um, thin translucent fabric. It becomes an acceptable fashionable textile. And this has been building since the late 1780s when Marie Antoinette scandalised the French court by appearing in a portrait dressed in a very simple uh, dress made of muslin that was seen to be like a chemise or kind of women's underwear. But by the 1790s, this kind of light, simple clothing that draped around the body instead of requiring structures underneath to give it shape, it was seen to hark back to the ancient world, to classical Greece and Rome, and to make women look like statues and to be part of new ideals of, you know, thinking about philosophical underpinnings of the world, to be connecting um, life and art. It's, it's, that's kind of a lot of the ideas are brewing that. So and- to go back a second, we talked about what men, how men dressed in the mid 18th century. So a, a, a woman, a woman of the sort of middling sort upwards in the mid 18th century is, is not dressed in that sort of classical way. They're, she's dressed in very, very elaborate, sort of rigid with all st- I don't really understand what stays are. What are stays? Okay, this is, this is, I'm glad oh, you Dominic. brought that up because it's really important. <laughs> the changes in stays is, again, one of the key markers of the change into Regency dress. So stays are what are sometimes called corsets, but they weren't in the 18th century, and they are a stiffened, supportive torso garment that women wear. So it runs kind of from the um, the bust down to the waist, generally with a sort of pointed front, and it provides support for the bosom and it gives shape to the outer garment. So it's kind of like an inverted triangle. That's the shape they're going for. And then on the bottom of that is a skirt of varying sort of degrees of volume and width according to where you are in time and what you're doing. But it's all around this kind of very soft, rigid, unnatural body shape. So if you'll forgive me, why are the stays not a corset? Because they become a corset in the Regency period. Okay. But yeah. they're not, of course, so, because what you described sounds very much like a corset to me, but this is me. I'm not familiar with women's 18th century women's underwear as much as I should be. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, this is a really, really common mistake. The thing is that because we have lived through the great 19th century period of corsets, which is what people think of when they think of corsets, the kind of the, yeah. the waist shaping, yeah. the hourglass figure. We tend Tom thinks to- about corsets all the time, Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> You're remaining very quiet there, Tom. I, I have no comment. I, but what I would, uh, just to introduce, uh, you, you quote a guy called William Buchan, who in 1811 is saying, it is indeed impossible to think of the old straight waistcoat of whalebone and of tight lacing without astonishment and some degree of horror. Um, and presumably he, I mean, he might be talking about men as, as well as women then, because you, you, you say about how the Prince Regent and his brother, the, the Duke of Cumberland, are, are so fat that they have to wear stays as well to kind of compress their stomachs. But just just sticking on on the the way in which um this kind of the 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 decline of the stays as it were coincides with the french revolution there is there is a sense isn't there that by casting off corsetry you are embracing in france certainly you're embracing a kind of political liberalism a kind of political freedom i mean would that would that be too excessive to say that and if and if it is if it is then 
why is it happening in Britain as well? Because presumably Britain is defining itself against against revolutionary France, against these kind of relaxations of traditional dress. The you know, the relationship between sort of French and British fashion and who influences whom is is difficult and, and multi-layered. And yes, certainly in France, kind of conceptually, that casting off of previous shackles. I mean, as I say, this has been building in art and court circles throughout the 1780s. Um, so the French Revolution kind of... Um, crystallizes this manifestation. But in Britain as well, I think there's that sense of liberty and democracy because for many in France, the British parliamentary model, where you do not have an absolute monarch, which is of course what the, the French Revolution is is disposing of, um, has often been influential, um, which we see in menswear when we, we talk about that. So there is I mean, there are also the sort of the general tides of fashion. As as things happen, people embrace them. But there's a new naturalism that is also supposedly very commensurate with the British character, that the British are easy, they are natural, they are yeah. simple, they're not affected and fussy like the French, obviously. So so there's a slight element of romanticism in that, isn't there? That there's sort of a, a turn away from the sort of the, the, the rational and the ordered to a, a freer... Is that am I am I overegging that or is that no? I think that's too? a very valid point. And for all that, the adoption of kind of classical influence in dress is supposedly, you know, looking into that kind of clean, pure, philosophical ancient world. It is absolutely a romanticism. And the 1790s is also the period where, in continental philosophy, the you know romantic philosophers is, is building. So there's it's looking back at the past and kind of you know using it as an influence for what's you know, slightly costumey in fashion. And so an emblematic example of that would be Emma Hamilton, would it? Um, yes. Who, so tell us about Emma Hamilton, who, who marries um, the, the ambassador, the British ambassador to Naples, but is, is most famous for having um, her, her, her relationship with Admiral Nelson, but who is kind of a celebrity, isn't she, for her, her kind of attitudinizing in wispy classical dress, but is a very, very romantic figure in every sense of the word. She absolutely is. And one of the things that, you know, people of, of good standing and connections did when they went to Naples was to go and see Emma Hamilton's attitudes. And she would kind of do these tableaus where just using uh, basically drapery and, and scarves. And again, in that very simple tradition, she would kind of take attitudes and form like still lives that were inspired by the classical world and uh, much by the sort of antiquarian objects that her husband collected. And there was uh, people who saw it kind of had trouble describing the the particular quality of it, but it, it seemed to sort of, it, it was magical almost. She seemed to kind of step out of the past and she was doing so with all of her magnificent chestnut hair unbound to her <laughs> yeah. knees, um, you know, just wrapped in, in very simple clothing. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that her fame and beauty and popularity was also very influential on travellers then returning home from Britain, people like Lady Charlotte Cam who then started kind of imitating not so much classical dress, but Emma Hamilton's version of classical dress. So that raises the interesting question about fashion more generally, which is mm. th this is an age where, where fashion, the idea of fashion exists. The word fashion? Very um, much so. And how much does that depend on, first of all, how much does that depend on individual trendsetters? So, you know, Emma Hamilton is the classic example, I suppose, or Marie Antoinette. And secondly, how is that disseminated? So is it all through print culture? Is it through pamphlets and, well, I guess newspapers? I mean, how does it, how does it, yeah, how does it travel? 
For me, this has been one of the most interesting things in really researching the the Regency period and trying to determine how fashion does travel. And as far as I can tell, it's really through people. The influence of visual print media is not nearly as strong as we think it is at the time. We are left with, you know, thousands of Regency fashion plates, but that's kind of not how people were really getting their, their influence. We also have to remember that British society is much smaller at the time. So if you're in London, it's very likely you could see Lady Charlotte Campbell on the street or in Hyde Park. You can actually go and watch the fashion makers, the tastemakers in London. And then if you're going to your milliner, your dressmaker, they're going to tell you what other people are buying. And even if you're further out into the country, your cousin, your friend who's in London can say, I saw Lady so-and-so wearing such and such, or, you know, I noticed that these veils or this kind of thing is, is in fashion, which Jane Austen does a lot in her letters. So there's a sense of kind of people transmitting through their own experience and then also people watching what other people are wearing and taking that on board. And I think that that's actually still the strongest transmitter of fashion in this period. But presumably for that to work, you need a a, a certain degree of infrastructure for people to see a, a fashionable woman, what she's wearing, and then to have it copied. So you need the shops, you need the, the, the milliners, you need the, the fabrics, you need the, the ind- industrial infrastructure that, that would be capable of doing it. And this is the age when Napoleon famously dismisses the British as a, a nation of shopkeepers. Is, is the fact that you have this infrastructure, is that, do you think, how important a role is that playing in kind of expediting this, this creation of a fashion industry? It's, it's absolutely huge. You know, at, at this sort of period in the late 18th century, um, along the Strand and on, along Oxford Street, it's basically four miles of shops. And then, you know, further into sort of the more fashionable areas in, in Mayfair and along Bond Street. So London is absolutely full of retailers and wholesalers and warehouses. And not only are people going to London to shop, as in Pride and Prejudice when um, Mrs. Bennett is is panicking because Lydia won't know the best warehouses to go to in London, smaller retailers uh, outside the capital are also buying from London. They will go up to town and then bring their stock in and also see what people are wearing and doing there. So there is a robust network of transmission. And you could also do it by mail. So people would send you fabric samples. Uh, there was a lot of proxy shopping where if a friend of yours is going to a major urban centre, it could be London or Bath, but even, you know, Manchester, Birmingham, Edinburgh, they will go and shop on your behalf. And you say, you know, please get me the, the, the most fashionable muslin, or I want a very nice yellow cambric. And then they will go and see what other people are wearing and kind of get the intelligence and come back and go, this is what, this is what, you know, looked nice, or this is what I could get, or this is what they say is the most appropriate. So it really is relying on networks of acquaintance and that social infrastructure that so holds up the middle classes and above and that, you know, Austen's novels, in a sense, really demonstrate how those connections and acquaintance work. And fashion is running exactly along those lines as well. And then what's the speed of transmission beyond what you would consider the most fashionable kind of metropolitan places? So in other words, if you think about a different era, like, like you know, the, the joke that's always made about the 1960s, say, is that everybody is wearing a miniskirt in Carnaby Street, but in Hull, people aren't wearing miniskirts until 2012. Um, how, 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 how soon are people in Hull wearing the new fashions that are inspired by the sort of the Emma Hamiltons of this world? Basically, as soon as information and income will allow them to. So if you've got the wherewithal and you're 
you know, waiting eagerly for news from London about what the latest fashions are. And you go into your local shop and go, all right, I'm going to buy a muslin and try and imitate this. You can do it kind of fairly quickly. Um, there is a, a school of thought that says that when, because, you know, one of the reasons I also like the Regency period is um, Australia has a history, a colonised white history at this point. But the the settlers in England who, uh, in Britain, in Australia, who had a six-month wait for goods from Britain, actually that wasn't much longer than, you know, if you're in sort of the Welsh Hills or maybe the Scottish Highlands. So it, it's... It could be relatively fast. And in fact, there's a wonderful quote from um, the Irish author, Mariah Edgeworth, who says that, you know, with the post and the roads that we have now, it's almost like everyone can know what everyone's doing at the same time. And it's like magical fairies, uh, <laughs> which, you know, in our day and age seems very slow. But she was impressed by how soon people could know what was happening and what was in fashion. But Henry, Dominic, Dominic compared this to the 60s, um, where the, the, the sense of a kind of generational divide and and um is very strong and also the kind of the pleasure that the fashionable take in shocking um people with more old-fashioned takes on 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 what you should be wearing and i I was really struck you quote you quote a magazine that 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 describes shocked old ladies and snorting old gentlemen bewailing modern tendencies the total lack of respect the boldness of behavior of the girl of today and in particular (laughs) the extreme indelicacy of her clothing i mean that could be describing i mean that could be describing the 60s couldn't it i mean and really really strike so so is again is basically all the kind of revolutions of fashion say the 60s punk everything all the kind of stuff that we're familiar with in in modern britain do you think does it is it anachronistic to think of something similar to that happening in the regency the regency is the first great fashion revolution Never had before has fashion changed so radically and so quickly. And it's, it kind of, everything that comes afterwards is just basically a slightly quicker version of what happened then. And it's interesting that the girl, that, I mean, to use that, I mean, I'm quoting the girl of today, that, 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 that figure is at the center of both, but as a sort of, um, as almost a figure to be feared. Is it that there's a sort of fear of unbridled, sexual excess and display and so on i mean that's certainly true in the 60s with the miniskirt and and whatnot is that true am i right in thinking that's pretty much true in the 1790s as well it absolutely is and as the fashion starts to change in the 1790s and into the 1800s one of the particular characteristics of it is it's it's using lighter fabrics and the cut shows off more of the body and to to go back to the sort of the difference between stays and corsets corsets were lighter versions of stays that were just made of fabric in fact it's it's french for kind of little body and the 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 major significant change here is that stays kind of squished the bosom into what sort of, you know, one round shape like the prow of a ship. And the new corsets gave us two breasts. And on a purely technical level, you have to cut things completely differently when you've got sort of, you know, two oranges sitting up the front there um, to be draped. And the the visibility just through silhouette of the, the female breast was, it was shocking. If you're used to seeing kind of this smooth triangular shape up the top with, you know, a little bit of rising bread at the top of it, to see the clear outline of the female figure is, it's very confronting. Not only that, you get lower um, back 
lines of gowns. So you see sort of shoulder blades and necks. The sleeves get shorter. So you're seeing more of the arm and the columnar shape of the, the gowns. They do kind of cling a bit over the hips and legs. So by comparison, this is naked. This is, it's, it's far less structured. The fabric is more transparent. You don't have that covering and you can kind of see that, you know, women have two arms and two legs and the bits that join them all together. It's, it's, it's quite a shock. But, but, but equally, this isn't the sixties. This is still a society very much determined by kind of religious morality, standards of behavior and so on. And so I'm guessing that what you wear, I mean, in a period of rapid change where fashions are changing and where there are, the fashions reflect, you know, I tend to be generated by the upper classes and they ripple outwards into the provinces. This presumably is why Jane Austen's novels are, are so concerned with behavior, people doing the wrong things, people committing the tiny little mistake that gets them ca- kind of cast out into social oblivion. And presumably then dress is a, a, absolutely key to this, to, to Jane Austen's world in that sense. It absolutely is because all of those nuances of enough but not too much that so rule the middle classes apply to clothing as well. And there's lots of examples of which I give a few in the book of people saying basically, all right, you have to know what's in fashion because you can't be too behind the times, but it's kind of, it's not seemly to be too much in fashion. You have to occupy a quite particular narrow ground of, you know, being like everyone else, you know, not being too old fashioned, but you don't want to go too radical. You don't want to go too extreme because that's, it's, it's not respectable. And, and how to kind of balance that is it spends, uh, uh, the middle class has spent a lot of time thinking about how to express that in their clothing. Yeah. And that's such a theme, isn't it? All the way through uh, all her novels. Um, I, I think we should take a break at this point. And Hilary, when we come back, perhaps we could look at the specifics of how female and male clothing, because I thought one of the most eye-opening things in your book was the way in which actually male clothing, the revolution in male clothing is perhaps the most enduring in, in a sense we're still living with it now. This is the answer, Tom, to a question that I have long pondered, which I've discussed with you before. When did people start wearing trousers? Well, we will, we will answer that question. So we will see you back in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I've got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. 
The result of the finest toilet should be an elegant woman, not an elegantly dressed woman. Uh, that, of course, was Mr. Darcy. Um, timeless words, timeless ruling. Um, and we are with Hilary Davidson, who is ta- taking us in the first part through an absolutely brilliant uh, tour de raison of uh, Regency fashion. And Hilary, now we've, we've discussed how this is a kind of revolutionary process, um, the first great age of, 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 of fashion. Um, could we look specifically at, ha- at how women's clothing changes over over the course of the 30 years of the let's call it the regency period the, the, the 1790s and the first two decades of the 19th century um what is it exactly that is so radical about the process of change well as i say the silhouette and the concept of what the body that you're dressing on changes fundamentally every period has its kind of ideal body and from the kind of structured, formal, mannered 18th century body, we suddenly have a new appreciation of quote unquote the natural body. And to see the, the body in the shape that it was, this is a really fundamental change that then underpins so much of the change that happens with dress. The change from very stiff stays to the softer corsets, uh, that then will emerge into the 19th century corsets with kind of less boning made of cotton and reflecting the shape of the body. That is coming from the kind of the changes in the body. That also then changes how you cut a dress. Because you have to do it differently if you've got a different supporting structure underneath. The biggest change and the one that most defines Regency women's dress is that the waistline goes up to underneath the bust and it stays there for about 20 years. So that also changes the styles that you can put onto that. You can't kind of have a huge skirt coming out from underneath your bust because it looks ridiculous as any pictures of Regency court dress will show. So it then changes what you can do with the rest of the fabric. The move to short sleeves also changes the decorative possibilities there because you've got a new structure of clothing on which to play. And then a lot of the industrial revolution that's happening is to do with textiles. So you've got new fabrics, especially in the realm of lace and netting. And once you have new things, people want to play with it. So you've got all of these kind of uh, new ideas like transparency and multi-layering of clothing coming into Regency dress that just wasn't physically possible before, except in limited ways with things like silk gauze. And then you have new headwear like the bonnet coming in. Right, we which also- is absolutely the marker key, of a Jane key. Austen, isn't it? So they're always going on about their bloody bonnets in Jane Austen books, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they care about nothing more than their bonnets. Would, would you would you say that um, the, the saliency of bonnets in Jane Austen <laughs> adaptations is reflective of the reality? Or is, is it a period, a kind of costume drama uh, fantasy? It's women wore some kind of headwear all the time. A bonnet was one of multiple options for that. And also what we think of now is that classic, you know, deep-brimmed thing. Uh, for Regency dresses, a bonnet could also mean a soft cap, like a Scotch bonnet. Um, so the kind of the, the brimmed item, it was one convention and two, it kept the sun off your face, which was important for their notions of beauty about not being tanned. You know, one of the criticisms of, of Lizzie Bennet in Pride and Prejudice is that she's become brown with the sun. And obviously, there's all sorts of implications in that as well. Uh, so it was, headwear was important, but it wasn't necessarily always a bonnet. But you always have your hair, your hair long, presumably. Yes. Well, not actually. No, in this period, we have some interesting things. It's another radical thing that happens. Women can have their hair cropped and, you know, quite short, like a pixie cut. And there Here is- Here nightly. 
Exactly. Exactly. And there is, um, it's thought that a lot of this does actually, this one comes from the French Revolution where aristocrats who had had relatives who had been executed would actually go to parties a la victime and they would crop their hair in imitation of those who had their hair cut off before they went to the guillotine. That's a bit weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is quite. Um, But yeah, for the first time, women could actually have short hair and it was sort of part of this radical union. Men cut theirs off as well. But in general, it was long. And if it was long, it was never out. Never. This kind of, you know, half up hair flowing romantical style that's beloved on screen just doesn't exist in the Regency period. It was always up, basically. Always up. Right. right. And one one of the, I mean, again, anyone who has particularly watched ad- film adapt- TV adaptations of Jane Austen, as I guess, particularly Pride and Prejudice, where Lizzie Bennet is always walking, isn't she? Um, presumably, it, it, it's it's more difficult for women to ride than it is for men. So, so in a sense, they, they're obliged to walk. And to what extent does that influence the direction of fashion for, for women? Well, one of the things I really want to explore in the book and to challenge was this idea of kind of women as sort of, you know, helpless, languorous beasts kind of stuck on their sofa. And, you know, one of the joys about that adaptation is that it really showed the physicality of daily life. And there's lots of records of Regency women doing 20-mile walks. And in a sense, the fact that shoes lose their heels for women, they become completely flat, this really encouraged especially middle-class women to be able to walk more. And there's lots of walking shoes with kind of studded soles that give you grip on um, muddy surfaces. But it's also kind of a matter of economics because a horse was expensive to maintain and it was often kind of a, a, a working thing. So if there was a horse in the household, it's likely that the men would have to use it for their business. So walking was very practical. Mm. And it's also a way of reinforcing social interactions. You know, you walk to the village um, and back, but you also have a whole lot of outer clothing that supports this walking, things like cloaks and pelisses and um, patterns, which are a kind of a high-raised clog that keep you out of you know, it, it, on unpaved roads, it's, it's dusty in summer, it's muddy in winter. So there is um, lots of clothing that supports this physical activity as well you, in this period. And, and you say that, that, that of uh, Jane Austen's actual dress, the only known survivals are a pelisse uh, and a shawl and then various items of jewellery. So That's right. But would Jane Austen have worn high heels? No, they weren't in fashion. So people had worn heels 50 years, certainly 100 years earlier but now they've gone out and they've gone out for women and for men except for Nicolas Sarkozy later in life we Um, we we, so so we on the podcast we've we've been very anxious about the fact that the Kaiser when he went to cows yachting wore the wrong shoes and essentially this was the cause of the first world war Tom you also wore the wrong shoes on a yachting holiday yeah I did let me be honest I I did but I wondered um just just on the topic of shoes could you turn up at a ball at Pemberley and be wearing the wrong shoes? Would that bring shame on you? It would, absolutely. Oh um, unfortunately, oh. it's one of those it's one of those glitches of some historical productions that they've had um, male characters turn up to balls in boots. No. Oh, no. oh dear. <laughs> I would have definitely worn boots to a ball. Well, you'd have, you'd have been flung out then, wouldn't you? You would. brought shame on the name of Sambrook. But I would have been in full military uniform. People would have welcomed me as a returning hero. Oh, that's all right. If it's military uniform, that's fine. Yes, we will. We'll be coming to that in a minute. But just, just one last thing on on uh, what women are wearing. 
you do say, so we, I said that um, by and large men are likely to be riding horses than women, but you do say riding habits were Britain's most successful female dress export. So that's good to know. It is. Riding habits were basically the nearest imitation to men's dress that you could get in women's wardrobe. And it's a quite practical, usually a bodice and a skirt made out of wool, usually tailored like men's clothing and made by tailors who are making for men. And it was just kind of a hard-wearing, practical gown for riding, but also for traveling and sort of sort of casual wear in a sense. Women are usually riding side saddle at this point, so it also has quite voluminous skirts yeah. to hide the legs, um, which shift slightly. And so when, when say, um, 1815, after the Battle of Waterloo, British women go to Paris, do they look completely odd to the French? I mean, do they look really, they say yes, you know, anglaise. <laughs> this is it's, it's quite interesting. You can trace a definite shift in British fashion from about 1814, because, of course, in 1814, we've got the first piece and there is a kind of tour of European leaders that comes to Britain. So, you know, the emperor of Russia is there and his sister, the Grand Duchess of Oldenburg, who has a very influential bonnet, the, the very high crowned Oldenburg bonnet sweeps Europe. And that's when you start to sort of get I mean, there's been interaction between France and Britain for fashion during the whole Napoleonic War period. But that's when you start to get people going, oh, look at what the French are doing. And when the English go to Paris, the French think they look slightly dowdy and old-fashioned and they're what? too interested in historicalness. What? I know, no. right? Who'd have thought? It's unbelievable. Oh. Unbelievable. Nobody ever says that about the English. No. I mean, that's And uh, <laughs> the French looked, they had still had kind of higher waists, but their skirts were starting to get a bit broader. And there's all these slight changes that happen in British fashion between about 1814-15, where it, it kind of comes more into line with French fashion. Uh, and you start getting people sort of talking about the things they've brought back from Paris and also how customs is um, confiscating some of the things they've brought back from Paris. And, you know, they're not very happy about that. So hold on, just to recap. Nicholas von Heidloff, when he said the English were absolute top dogs in the sartorial arena, are you saying that this was, view was not, in fact, universally held, that some people thought the English were a bit boring and fusty and reactionary in their dress? Is that well, right? they did, but it was the French who thought that. So is that, is that okay. um, yeah. Yeah, they would, wouldn't they? But also, Hilary, I mean, I mean isn't, it the, isn't it the case that, that perhaps female fashion is – seen as being less cutting edge, less less kind of uh, must-have by much people so. on the continent. But male fashion is, I, I gather from your book, absolutely the bee's knees. Anglomania. It is. It is Anglomania. And, you know, it, it's remarkable how appropriate it becomes. There's there's quotes saying that, you know, if you are, if you are dressed in the English style, you are well-dressed anywhere on the continent for men. That, I mean, that is that hasn't changed, has it? That's no. very true today. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, what, 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 so what is it about, well, two questions. First of all, what changes about male dress in Britain over the 1790s and the first two decades of the 19th century? And what is it about those changes that, that strikes people on the continent as, as so appealing? This is kind of a it's a it's a twofold answer because like much of the changes, this has also been building during the seventeen seventies and eighties. And what distinguishes English men's dress from the French is in a sense its casualness, its comfort, the notion of the English country gentleman who is in good solid leather breeches, he's wearing riding boots, and he's got a well tailored but plain coat 
uh, that sort of suits him, that he can jump on a horse, he can stride around with the hounds in. It's kind of emblematic of uh, more ease and freedom, but also his kind of more democratic abilities right. as kind of he's master not, of his- he, he doesn't have to wear the kind of court Versailles. The peruke and the buckles. Yeah, and, and all of yeah. the embroidery and yeah. the silk and the, and the, so it's quite a, a distinct figure from that. So the, the, the sort of the country squire has always been held up like that. And Anglomania really starts to kind of take off in the, probably the 1780s. So as these kind of new changes come in, it's seen that this style that is there in England it becomes even more embraced. And within England, there's an increasing kind of, I suppose, trickle up. You get a lot of men being made fun of for dressing like their grooms or dressing like jockeys, like working men who have kind of practical, comfortable clothing. So it's like Prince Prince um, Harry or somebody wearing a baseball cap. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But there's yeah. a sort of emphasis on sobriety. Is that is that fair? That you're so you're not dressing in a flamboyant way. No. You're not trying to look like a sort of fop. You're trying to look serious, and you wear dark colours, and, and that's new, right? Because previously men had dressed in very like very peacocks. yeah bold, dramatic, sort of bright colours, and and in a way, you, I suppose you could say this is one of those elements of of this revolution that has endured. I mean, men do, by and large, dress much more, much more, less brightly than women, don't they? They absolutely do. And what we also get from this period, and again, this is still where the English reputation maintains, is good tailoring. Yeah, Savile so, Row. Yeah, Savile Row. Savile yeah. Row's greatness begins during this period because previously the the kind of the quality of the fabric and the embroidery and to a sense the decoration was more important. But suddenly you start to get more of an emphasis on kind of quite subdued or austere fabric, but cut beautifully. So it makes you look better and it enhances the body and it enhances the shoulder. And you get this new kind of emphasis on this kind of still what is the template male figure of like, broad shoulders, strong neck, narrow waist, strong hips, which is also coming from classical statues and the classical ideal. So it's all working in together, but the the sense of that the quality of the fabric is not immediately visible, but it's how it's tailored and shaped that's important springs from this period. Well, Hilary, I, I, I have a, a bespoke suit from Savile Row. And it, it does make me look like a Greek god. It's amazing. <laughs> Which Absolutely one? Amazing. Hephaestus. Yeah, Hephaestus. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. The bands. The bands. Uh, no, it was so. so it was um, a, a friend of mine who was fabulously rich. Said, I, "I think I can get you a special deal with my tailor." And I was the idea of. I mean, I was so excited about it, and he did get me a special deal, but it was still so expensive. It was eye-wateringly expensive. I'm, I'm sure, Tom. That will. I'm sure the listeners will love hearing. This, this detail. It makes you really I might, relatable. Well, I might, I might, yeah, I, might exactly. I might, I might, um, I might post a, a photo of myself in my Savile Row. Oh, that will really endear you to the public. Yeah, do. But still, you, you, I mean, say, you know, if you were really a Regency gentleman, you say you'd actually be going to different tailors for your coat and for your waistcoat and your trousers. And so. obviously, obviously, the role model for a, a well-dressed man about town like myself, as as he has always been, is Beau Brummel, who yes. Cuts a tremendous dash in your book. Um, so for people who don't know about Beau Brummel, who is basically the model of fine English tailoring and dressing, isn't he? Just you just tell us about him and how cool he is. <laughs> so Beau Brummel is very interesting because he was not aristocratic. This is a key point about him. He was a middle class 
fellow. I mean, he still went to Eton, but he was incredible. Exactly. So he's not Alexander McQueen. <laughs> but, that, but that kind of thing, that, uh, in recency yeah. terms. Yeah, exactly. And he was just incredibly well-dressed and attentive to clothing himself, but not in a showy way, in a subdued way. So he was about having the best of things, but not being ostentatious, beautifully laundered shirts, beautifully cut jackets, um, you know, perfect trousers. But his ideal was always that the man in the street should not turn and look at you. You should be so perfectly dressed, you are invisible. And mm. his ideas and way of dressing was kind of like a, a breath of fresh air. But I mean, I should also say it's very much encapsulating what is already happening in clothing. And he's like the best, he's the apotheosis of what this is. And he ended up becoming friends with the Prince Regent and kind of really influencing his clothing and had much more powerful reach about ideas about dress that weren't necessarily about showiness. They were about quality and understanding and connoisseurship in clothing that have become incredibly influential. And as I say, he's the figure who best best started doing that and wasn't yeah. an aristocrat. And so he's kind of, he looms large over dress history. Well, well perhaps through Beau Brummel, we can come to the absolutely key question, which is about trousers. So <laughs> Beau Brummel wears you trousers. Have always, you have always wondered about this. Well, you? I said to you in an earlier podcast ages ago. I know. I that, remember. That, that, that years and years ago, Tom, when I was doing my PhD, I went for a drink with um, Ted Valance, who's been on our podcast to talk about Magna Carta and about the execution of Charles I. And I said to him, Ted, when did people start wearing trousers? And despite the fact that he was doing a PhD at the same time on early modern history, he couldn't give me a because definitive not date. his period, as as he would have known it had he read um, Hillary's book. So Hillary, clearly, clearly, so tell us about trousers. Yeah, if I'm a man about town in 1770, <laughs> I'm not wearing trousers. In 1820, I am wearing trousers. So when's that tipping point? It again begins to pick up speed in the 1790s for a couple of reasons. So when we talk about breeches. They are always knee length. They finish just underneath the knee. And the only, this is sort of standard, you know, middle class and upper wear and, and, and working wear as well. And the only people who are wearing lower garments, the only men who are wearing lower garments that run from the waist all the way down to the ankle are sailors. And they're wearing kind of loose, comfortable trousers on board ship, some working men as well. And this, in a sense, is also what they mean by the sans-culotte in the French Revolution. They mean they're not wearing breeches they're wearing trousers. So in another one of these trickle-up moments, uh, we get a new popularity for ankle-reaching legwear in the 1790s thanks to war because men in the army are wearing pantaloons, which are kind of in between breeches and trousers. They're, they're completely tight-fitting to the leg, but they run all the way down. So they're tight like breeches, but they're long like trousers. Hold on, I'm just trying to get my head around pantaloon. A Think pantaloon is like a legging. Yeah. 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 So what's Nelson wear? Does he wear trousers or, pant or pantaloons? He's wearing, uh, for full dress, he's wearing breeches. And then I think if he's just hanging around the cabin, he's wearing, yeah. Yeah, he's wearing white duck trousers with trousers. the lads. Okay. So military men and naval men are wearing these ankle length garments. And as the Napoleonic Wars increase and the, the respect and admiration of the, the nation increases for these men as well, trousers start to become fashionable. So again, it's a, it's a kind of a casualization because first of all, pantaloons are easier to get into boots, which you're wearing for riding. So as riding boots become more popular, pantaloons work with them and they, they start to creep into fashion. So I think it's in 18, 
Oh gosh, early on, uh, the Duke of Wellington was actually refused admission to Olmax, the, the most exclusive social club because he was wearing trousers. Yeah, I think it's you know, about sort of Crikey. the 1810s. He wore yes. the wrong trousers. He wore the wrong trousers. Wow. History could have been changed there as well. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, didn't matter how famous he were. It was still not considered acceptable. But by about 1820, the use of these trousers, whether tight like pantaloons, um, or just sort of long as trousers that we have now had just become normalized. Right. And this is further compounded by, uh, the appearance of Russian Cossacks in yes. London in 1814, who are wearing trousers that are pleated at the top and are quite full. And imitations of these became popular and were so called kind of Cossacks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I think Lord, Lord Liverpool, I, I think, was the first prime minister to have ever worn trousers. Because I think there's a famous portrait of Lord Liverpool where he's clearly wearing trousers. So... That's my contribution to the whole trousers. Well, my, my contribution is that um, the most fashionable, the, the kind of maybe the person who makes them really fashionable is Byron because he has a club foot. And so wearing trousers enables him to disguise his club foot, which I learned from, from your book. Yeah, he's, um, he's, he definitely finds them more comfortable. And also he you know spends a lot of time in hotter areas. They're sort of, they're looser, they're easier. But yeah, Byron loved trousers because the length meant that he could hide his, his little foot. How much he actually popularized them may be sort of, you know, self-mythologizing because yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's not averse to that. But, um, but, but the, I, I mean, you touched on this, the idea that, um, men in red coats, um, and you, you I mean, the Navy as well, you have a, a, a picture of a guy called Captain Gilbert Heathcote, who, I mean, he's gorgeous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, yeah, you love this bloke, Tom. Don't well, you? I'm, uh, I don't normally feel homoerotic stirrings, but but you do. It's quite something. He's and splendid. I, he's, he's, he's resplendent. So, so basically, um, you you say that um, looking at soldiers is a rare example of Regency women, frankly appraising the physique of the opposite sex. And of course, there's Mrs. Bennet, isn't there, who famously says that that there was a time when she liked a red coat. Um, so, <laughs> we've talked about how um, you know with Beau Brummel and every, everything, men's tailoring is becoming sober and respectable. But presumably having all these kind of guys in bright red coats. It's... With very tight trousers on. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this was my favorite sentence in your entire book. Anxieties about male evening dress involved tightness. So <laughs> red coats and tightness. Talk us through that. Well, as women's waistline rose on dresses, the fronts of men's waistcoats were also rising. So where in the 1770s or 80s, they largely covered the groin, by the sort of about 1800, you suddenly had the entire area from the waist right down to the ankle visible. And so in men's dress, you also have coats that are cut away at the origin of our modern tail coats where they're slightly higher front and, you know, nothing to cover at the front. So there's a lot more of the male loins, shall we say, <laughs> on display and in focus than there has previously been. And when you combine that with, you know, the appeal of the uniform on top, whether that's red for the army or kind of blue for the navy, there's a lot to look at. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so would it be fair to say that, I mean, just elaborate what we touched on at the start of this section, that what happens with male dress, there is a continuity from this period that is still with us to this day. So whether it's people wearing very, men wearing very tight jeans, whether it's a suit that has become a kind of global uniform, um, the origin point for those kind of trends are this period in Britain. 
Absolutely. And the way, the way that men's dress transforms in the 1790s and 1800s sets the template for essentially Western men's dress that is still with us today. But can I ask about two things that are not with us today? Can. One of them is wigs. So at what point do people drop wigs? Well, one of the interesting things I came across in my research is that it actually takes a while for people to drop wigs. They're just not so obvious. So the kind of the white powdered wig that is so emblematic of the 18th century, people still wear wigs. They just do it with natural colored hair. Mm. So, right. you know, you're wearing a wig, but it's, you know, it's a toupee. Brown it and could, it's sort of, it yeah. could be your hair. It could yeah. be your hair. And so that's kind of, it, it encompasses that change from artificial hair to natural hair. But we've got really good example of when it starts to become a bit passe, uh, which is, unsurprisingly, the Prince Regent. By the time he becomes George IV, he's wearing a flaxen wig that is obviously just inappropriate for him and it's yeah. it's commented upon because it looks so awkward and, you know, obviously So he's fake. wearing the wrong hair. It, yeah, <laughs> it's commented on by Bo Brummel, isn't it? Who, who's your yeah. fat friend? Because <laughs> they have a kind of falling out. and um, They do. Yeah. Um, so, so allied to wigs, I mean, you couldn't wear a wig and this thing, are hats. Mm. Uh, so am I... Forgive my ignorance, but basically, do hats replace wigs? Because you can't wear both, can you? Oh, absolutely. Yes, you oh, you, you can, can wear, wear both. both. You can you wear, wear a tricorn both. hat. Yeah, I suppose you can, can't you? Yeah, of course you can. Stupid question. So, but people are still wearing hats. That the hat, the hats change as well because people obviously stop wearing tricorn hats. They do, and again, you know, so many things change in this period. So we get top hats. Which we're, you know, we're so used to now, but yeah. it, it, you're absolutely right in identifying the tricorn hat. That's, that's the kind of the typical hat of the 18th century, which is, you know, you take a round hat and you, you turn the brim up in three points or you get the bicorn where you turn it up front and back, which is the very naval style. But we have these kind of higher crowned beaver hats, uh, you know, made of beaver fur in the 1790s that have sort of a slightly angled in crown. And they, those crowns start to get straighter. So this kind of stovepipey looking uh, prototype of the top hat it becomes more and more popular during this you know all of this period that we're talking about until by 1820 which is when all of these changes seem to have kind of coalesced mm -hmm. we start we stop getting the period of transition and people are like okay this is what clothing is now yep yep okay good let's go right. uh the top hat has become normal men's headwear right that has completely replaced the tricorn that looks archaic and rustic by this point Tom, let me ask you this question. Would you prefer to have worn a top hat and trousers, very tight trousers, or would you prefer to have worn a tricorn hat and breeches and stockings? I would definitely, uh, I would go for Bo Brummel. He's my, would you? Yeah. I think, I mean, I think everyone who knows me would, would say that I'm clearly a disciple of Bo Brummel. I would love to have worn a, a tricorn hat. Well, you'd look splendid. You would look like a kind of country squire, wouldn't you? Yeah. Or a sort of corrupt excise man. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, like a sort of a cruel and rapacious excise man on the coast yes. dealing with smugglers on but a daily basis. you need to have a slightly redder nose. I think. Yeah, Squire. You, you, you drink a lot. Who's that bloke that I was likened to on the podcast? Squire Allworthy. Is it Squire Allworthy or were you Squire, no, Squire Allworthy? Western. Squire Western. Squire Western and Tom Jones. Yeah, but I, exactly. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as Mr. Darcy. So that's the difference between <laughs> us. So, um, well, so, I think so, you should. I think when, you know, we should reenact this, these scenes, shouldn't we? we? Should. I mean, I'd pay good money to see you coming out of a lake when the, and freezing I, cold. I, I, re I really love um, Regency male fashions. It's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, why I read Henry's book. Um, they are very elegant. They really are. 
and they they make me look great. And Hilary, you're very much you're very much team eighteen fifteen, not team. 1780. Am I right? I, mean, I am. Think- I am. I really, I start to get interested in the 1790s. Lots of people love 18th century fashion and do lots of work on it, but it kind of, it leaves me cold until the 1790s. And then I'm just like, oh, look at all this stuff that's well, happening. Well, Hilary, I am with Lady Elizabeth Whitbread, who you quote, um, who comes across a man uh, dressed in the kind of things that Dominic would have been wearing. Are you not ashamed of yourself? You a man and an Englishman? Because he's wearing, um, he's wearing the wrong, the wrong clothes. Oh, too too fancy, too col- too yeah, colours right. too bright, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, Hillary, thanks so much. That was that was such fun, and your book is so good. Uh, so, dress in the age of Jane Austen, um, all about Regency fashion, and it's not just brilliantly written, but it has amazing illustrations as well. It's a beautiful book, beautiful book. So, if you have any interest in this subject, rush out and buy it. Um, thanks very much for listening, uh, and impeccably dressed as ever. We will be back for more podcasts very soon thank you very much thank you bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com